0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And today, chapters 11 and 12, from The Return of Tarzan, by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And now, chapter 11, John Caldwell, London. As Numa El Adria launched himself with widespread paws and bared fangs, he looked to find this puny man as easy prey as the score who had gone down beneath him in the past. To him man was a clumsy, slow-moving, defenseless creature. He had little respect for him. But this time he found that he was pitted against a creature as agile and as quick as himself. When his mighty frame struck the spot where the man had been, he was no longer there. The watching girl was transfixed by astonishment at the ease with which the crouching man eluded the great paws, And now, oh Allah, he had rushed in behind El Adria's shoulder even before the beast could turn, and had grasped him by the mane— the lion reared upon his hind legs like a horse. Tarzan had known that he would do this, and he was ready. A giant arm encircled the black mane throat, and once, twice, a dozen times, a sharp blade darted in and out of the bay-black side behind the left shoulder. Frantic were the leaps of Numa, awful his roars of rage and pain, but the giant upon his back could not be dislodged or brought within reach of the fangs or talons in the brief interval of life that remained to the lord with the large head." He was quite dead when Tarzan of the apes released his hold and arose. Then the daughter of the desert witnessed a thing that terrified her even more than had the presence of Eladria. The man placed a foot upon the carcass of his kill, and, with his handsome face raised toward the full moon, gave voice to the most frightful cry that ever had smote upon her ears. With a little cry of fear she shrank away from him. She thought that the fearful strain of the encounter had driven him mad." As the last note of that fiendish challenge died out in the diminishing echoes of the distance, the man dropped his eyes until they rested upon the girl. Instantly his face was lighted by the kindly smile that was ample assurance of his sanity, and the girl breathed freely once again, smiling in response. "'What manner of man are you?' she asked. "'The thing you have done is unheard of. Even now I cannot believe that it is possible for a lone man armed only with a knife,' to have fought hand-to-hand with Eladria and conquered him, unscathed to have conquered him at all. And that cry, it wasn't human. Why did you do that? Tarzan flushed. It is because I forget, he said, sometimes that I am a civilized man. When I kill, it must be that I am another creature. He did not try to explain further for it always seemed to him that a woman must look with loathing upon one who is yet so nearly a beast. Together they continued their journey. The sun was an hour high when they came out into the desert again beyond the mountains. Beside a little rivulet they found the girls' horses grazing. They had come this far on their way home, and with the cause of their fear no longer present, had stopped to feed. With little trouble Tarzan and the girl caught them, and mounting, rode out into the desert toward the duar of Sheikh Kadur ben Sadin. No sign of pursuit developed, and they came in safety about nine o'clock to their destination. The sheik had but just returned. He was frantic with grief at the absence of his daughter, whom he thought had been again abducted by the marauders. With fifty men he was already mounted to go in search of her when the two rode into the duar. His joy at the safe return of his daughter was only equaled by his gratitude to Tarzan for bringing her safely to him through the dangers of the night, and his thankfulness that she had been in time to save the man who had once saved her. No honor that Kadur ben Sadin could heap upon the ape man in acknowledgment of his esteem and friendship was neglected. When the girl had recited the story of the slaying of El Adria, Tarzan was surrounded by a mob of worshipping Arabs. It was a sure road to their admiration and respect. The old sheik insisted that Tarzan remain indefinitely as his guest. He even wished to adopt him as a member of the tribe, and there was for some time a half-formed resolution in the ape man's mind to accept and remain forever with these wild people, whom he understood, and who seemed to understand him. His friendship and liking for the girl were potent factors in urging him toward an affirmative decision. Had she been a man, he said to himself, he should not have hesitated, for it would have meant a friend after his own heart, with whom he could ride and hunt at will. But as it was, they would be hedged by the conventionalities that are even more strictly observed by the wild nomads of the desert than by their more civilized brothers and sisters." and in a little while she would be married to one of these swarthy warriors, and there would be an end to their friendship. So he decided against the sheikh's proposal, though he remained a week as his guest. When he left, Kadur ben Sadin and fifty white-robed warriors rode with him to Busaida. While they were mounting in the du'ar of Kadur ben Sadin the morning of their departure, the girl came to bid farewell to Tarzan. "'I have prayed that you would remain with us,' she said simply. "'as he leaned from his saddle to clasp her hand in farewell. "'And now I shall pray that you will return.' "'There was an expression of wistfulness in her beautiful eyes "'and a pathetic droop at the corners of her mouth. "'Tarzan was touched. "'Who knows?' "'And then he turned and rode after the departing Arabs. "'Outside Busaida he bade Kadur ben Sadin and his men good "'for there were reasons which made him wish to make his entry into the town "'as secret as possible.' and when he had explained them to the Sheik, the latter concurred in his decision. The Arabs were to enter Busaida ahead of him, saying nothing as to his presence with them. Later Tarzan would come in alone, and go directly to an obscure native inn. Thus, making his entrance after dark, as he did, he was not seen by anyone who knew him, and reached the inn unobserved. After dining with Kadur ben Sadin as his guest, he went to his former hotel by a roundabout way, and coming in by a rear entrance, sought the proprietor, who seemed much surprised to see him alive. Yes, there was mail for monsieur. He would fetch it. No, he would mention monsieur's return to no one. Presently he returned with a packet of letters. One was an order from his superior to lay off on his present work, and hasten to Cape Town by the first steamer he could get. His further instructions would be awaiting him there in the hands of another agent, whose name and address were given. That was all brief but explicit. Tarzan arranged to leave Boussaida early the next morning. Then he started for the garrison to see Captain Girard, whom the hotel man had told him had returned with his detachment the previous day. He found the officer in his quarters. He was filled with surprise and pleasure at seeing Tarzan alive and well. When Lieutenant Gernois returned and reported that he had not found you at the spot that you had chosen to remain while the detachment was scouting, I was filled with alarm. We searched the mountain for days." Then came word that you had been killed and eaten by a lion. As proof, your gun was brought to us. Your horse had returned to camp the second day after your disappearance. We could not doubt. Lieutenant Gernois was grief-stricken. He took all the blame upon himself. It was he who insisted on carrying on the search himself. It was he who found the Arab with your gun. He will be delighted to know that you are safe. Doubtless, said Tarzan, with a grim smile. He is in town now. "'Or should I send for him?' continued Captain Gerard. "'I shall tell him as soon as he returns.' Tarzan let the officer think that he had been lost, wandering finally into the duar of Khadur ben Sadin, who had escorted him back to Busaida. As soon as possible he bade the good officer adieu, and hastened back into the town. At the native inn he learned through Kadur ben Sadin a piece of interesting information. It told of a black-bearded white man who always was disguised as an Arab.' For a time he had nursed a broken wrist. More recently he had been away from Saïda, but now he was back, and Tarzan knew his place of concealment. It was for there that he headed. Through narrow, stinking alleys, black as Erebus, he groped, and then up a rickety stairway at the end of which was a closed door and a tiny, unglazed window. The window was high under the low eaves of the mud building. Tarzan could just reach the sill. He raised himself slowly until his eyes topped it, The room within was lighted, and at a table sat Rokoff and Gernois. Gernois was speaking. "'Rokoff, you are a devil,' he was saying. "'You have hounded me until I have lost the last shred of my honor. You have driven me to murder, for the blood of that man Tarzan is on my hands. If it were not that that other devil's spawn, Polvich, still knew my secret, I should kill you here tonight with my bare hands.' Rokoff laughed. "'You would not do that, my dear lieutenant.' he said. The moment I am reported dead by assassination, the dear Alexis will forward to the Minister of War full proof of the affair you so ardently long to conceal, and further, I will charge you with my murder. Come, be sensible. I am your best friend. Have I not protected your honor as though it were my own? Gernois sneered and spat out an oath. Just one more little payment, continued Rokoff. "'and the papers I wish, "'and you have my word of honour "'that I shall never ask another cent from you "'or further information. "'And a good reason why?' "'Growled Gernois. "'What you ask will take my last cent, "'and the only valuable military secret I hold. "'You ought to be paying me for the information, "'instead of taking both it and the money, too. "'I am paying you "'by keeping a still tongue in my head,' "'retorted Rokoff. "'But let's have done, will you?' "'or will you not? "'I give you three minutes to decide. "'If you are not agreeable, "'I shall send a note to your commandant tonight "'that will end in the degradation that Dreyfus suffered, "'the only difference being that he did not deserve it.' "'For a moment Gernois sat with bowed head. "'At length he arose. "'He drew two pieces of paper from his blouse. "'Here,' he said hopelessly, "'I had them ready, "'for I knew that there could be but one outcome. "'He held them toward the Russian.' Rokoff's cruel face lighted in malignant gloating. He seized the bits of paper. "'You have done well, Jeunois,' he said. "'I shall not trouble you again, unless you happen to accumulate some more money or information.' And he grinned. "'You never shall again, you dog,' hissed Gernois. "'The next time I shall kill you. I came near doing it tonight. For an hour I sat with these two pieces of paper on my table before me ere I came here.' "'I was trying to decide which I should bring. "'Next time the choice will be easier, "'for I already have decided. "'You had a close call tonight, Rokoff. "'Do not tempt fate a second time.' "'Then Gernois rose to leave. "'Tarzan barely had time to drop to the landing "'and shrink back into the shadows on the far side of the door. "'Even then he scarcely hoped to elude detection. "'The landing was very small, "'and though he flattened himself against the wall at its far edge, "'he was scarcely more than a foot from the doorway.' Almost immediately it opened, and Gernois stepped out. Rokoff was behind him. Neither spoke. Gernois had taken perhaps three steps down the stairway when he halted and half turned, as though to retrace his steps. Tarzan knew that discovery was inevitable. Rokoff still stood on the threshold a foot from him, but he was looking in the opposite direction, toward Gernois. Then the officer evidently reconsidered his decision and resumed his downward course. Tarzan could hear Rokoff's sigh of relief. A moment later the Russian went back into the room and closed the door. Tarzan waited until Gernois had had time to get well out of hearing. Then he pushed open the door and stepped into the room. He was on top of Rokoff before the man could rise from the chair where he sat scanning the papers Gernois had given him. As his eyes turned and fell upon the ape-man's face, his own went livid. "'You!' he gasped. "'I,' replied Tarzan. "'What do you want?' whispered Rokoff for the look in the ape-man's eyes frightened him. "'Have you come to kill me? You do not dare. They would guillotine you. You do not dare kill me.' "'I dare kill you, Rokoff,' replied Tarzan, "'for no one knows that you are here or that I am here, and Polvich would tell them that it was Jernois. I heard you tell Jernois so. But that would not influence me, Rokoff. I would not care who knew that I'd kill you. The pleasure of killing you "'would more than compensate for any punishment "'they might inflict upon me. "'You are the most despicable cur of a coward, Rokoff. "'I have ever heard of. "'You should be killed. "'I should love to kill you.' "'And Tarzan approached closer to the man. "'Rokoff's nerves were keyed to the breaking point. "'With a shriek he sprang toward an adjoining room, "'but the ape-man was upon his back "'while his leap was yet but half completed. Iron fingers sought Rokoff's throat. "'The great coward squealed like a stuck pig.' until Tarzan had shut off his wind. Then the ape-man dragged him to his feet, still choking him. The Russian struggled futilely. He was like a babe in the mighty grasp of Tarzan of the apes. Tarzan sat him in a chair, and long before there was danger of the man's dying, he released his hold upon his throat. When the Russians' coughing spell had abated, Tarzan spoke to him again. "'I've given you a taste of the suffering of death,' he said. "'But I shall not kill this time.' I am sparing you solely for the sake of a very good woman whose great misfortune it was to have been born of the same woman who gave birth to you. But I shall spare you only this once on her account. Should I ever learn that you have again annoyed her or her husband? Should you ever annoy me again? Should I hear that you have returned to France or to any French possession? I shall make it my sole business to hunt you down and complete the choking I commenced to-night. Then he turned to the table, on which two pieces of paper still lay. As he picked them up, Rokoff gasped in horror. Tarzan examined both the check and the other. He was amazed at the information the letter contained. Rokoff had partially read it, but Tarzan knew that no one could remember the salient facts and figures it held, which made it of real value to an enemy of France. "'These will interest the chief of staff,' he said, as he slipped them into his pocket. Rokoff groaned. He did not dare curse aloud.' The next morning Tarzan rode north on his way to Boira and Algiers. As he had ridden past the hotel, Lieutenant Gernois was standing on the veranda. As his eyes discovered Tarzan, he went white as chalk. The ape man would have been glad had the meeting not occurred, but he could not avoid it. He saluted the officer as he rode past. Mechanically, Gernois returned the salute, but those terrible, wide eyes followed the horseman, expressionless except for horror. "'It was as though a dead man looked upon a ghost. "'At Sidi Aissa, Tarzan met a French officer "'with whom he had become acquainted "'on the occasion of his recent sojourn in the town. "'You left Boussaida early?' questioned the officer. "'Then you have not heard about poor Genois. "'He was the last man I saw as I rode away,' replied Tarzan. "'What about him?' "'He is dead. "'He shot himself about eight o'clock this morning.' Two days later, Tarzan reached Algiers.' "'There he found that he would have a two-day's wait "'before he could catch a ship bound for Cape Town. "'He occupied his time in writing out a full report of his mission. "'The secret papers he had taken from Rokoff he did not enclose, "'for he did not dare trust them out of his own possession "'until he had been authorized to turn them over to another agent "'or himself return to Paris with them. "'As Tarzan boarded his ship after what seemed a most tedious wait to him, two men watched him from an upper deck. "'Both were fashionably dressed and smooth-shaven.' The taller of the two had sandy hair, but his eyebrows were very black. Later in the day they chanced to meet Tarzan on deck, but as one hurriedly called his companion's attention to something at sea, their faces were turned from Tarzan as he passed, so that he did not notice their features. In fact, he had paid no attention to them at all. Following the instructions of his chief, Tarzan had booked his passage under an assumed name, John Caldwell, London. He did not understand the necessity of this it caused him considerable speculation. He wondered what role he was to play in Cape Town. "'Well,' he thought, "'thank heaven that I am rid of Rokoff. He was commencing to annoy me. I wonder if I am really becoming so civilized that presently I shall develop a set of nerves. He would give them to me if anyone could, for he does not fight fair. One never knows through what new agency he's is going to strike. It is as though Numa, the lion, had induced Tantor, the elephant, and Hista, the snake, to join him in attempting to kill me, I would then never have known what minute, or by whom, I was to be attacked the next. But the brutes are more chivalrous than man; they do not stoop to cowardly intrigue. At dinner that night, Tarzan sat next to a young woman whose place was at the captain's left. The officer introduced them, Miss Strong. Where had he heard that name before? It was very familiar. And then the girl's mother gave him the clue, for when she addressed her daughter, she called her Hazel. Hazel Strong! What memories the name inspired! It had been a letter to this girl, penned by the fair hand of Jane Porter, that had carried to him the first message from the woman he loved. How vividly he recalled the night he had stolen it from the desk in the cabin of his long-dead father, where Jane Porter had sat writing it late into the night, while he crouched in the darkness without. How terror-stricken she would have been, that night, had she known that the wild jungle beast squatted outside her window, watching her every move. And this was Hazel Strong, Jane Porter's best friend. We'll return to Chapter 12 right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, And now, Chapter 12, Ships That Pass. Let us go back a few months to the little windswept platform of a railway station in northern Wisconsin. The smoke of forest fires hangs low over the surrounding landscape, its acrid fumes in the eyes of a little party of six who stand waiting the coming of the train that is to bear them away toward the south. Professor Archimedes Q. Porter, his hands clasped beneath the tails of his long coat, paces back and forth under the ever-watchful eye of his faithful secretary, Mr. Samuel T. Philander. Twice within the past few minutes, he has started absentmindedly across the tracks in the direction of a nearby swamp, only to be rescued and dragged back by the tireless Mr. Philander. Jane Porter, the professor's daughter, is in strained and lifeless conversation with William Cecil Clayton and Tarzan of the Apes. Within the little waiting room, but a bare moment before, A confession of love and a renunciation had taken place that had blighted the lives and happiness of two of the party. But William Cecil Clayton, Lord Greystoke, was not one of them. Behind Miss Porter hovered the motherly Esmeralda. She, too, was happy, for was she not returning to her beloved Maryland? Already she could see dimly through the fog of smoke the murky headlight of the oncoming engine. The men began to gather up the hand baggage, and suddenly Clayton exclaimed, By Jove! I've left my ulster in the waiting room! And he hastened off to fetch it. Goodbye, Jane, said Tarzan, extending his hand. God bless you. Goodbye, replied the girl faintly. Try to forget me. No, not that. I couldn't bear to think that you had forgotten me. There's no danger of that, dear, he murmured. "'I wish to heaven that I might forget. "'It would be so much easier than to go through life "'always remembering what might have been. "'You will be happy, though. "'I am sure you shall. "'You must be. "'You may tell the others of my decision "'to drive my car on to New York. "'I don't feel equal to bidding Clayton goodbye. "'I want to always remember him kindly, "'but I fear that I am too much of a wild beast yet "'to be trusted too long with the man "'who stands between me and the one person "'in all the world that I want.' As Clayton stooped to pick up his coat in the waiting room, his eyes fell on a telegraph blank lying face down upon the floor. He stooped to pick it up, thinking it might be a message of importance which someone had dropped. He glanced at it hastily, and then suddenly he forgot his coat, the approaching train, everything but that terrible little piece of yellow paper in his hand. He read it twice before he could fully grasp the terrific weight of meaning that it bore to him. When he had picked it up, he had been an English nobleman, THE PROUD AND WEALTHY POSSESSOR OF VAST ESTATES. A MOMENT LATER HE HAD READ IT, AND HE KNEW THAT HE WAS AN UNTITLED AND penniless BEGGAR. IT WAS DARNEAU'S CABLEGRAM TO TARZAN, AND IT READ, FINGERPRINTS PROVE YOU Greystoke. CONGRATULATIONS. DARNEAU. HE STAGGERED AS THOUGH HE HAD RECEIVED A MORTAL BLOW. JUST THEN HE HEARD THE OTHERS CALLING TO HIM TO HURRY. THE TRAIN WAS COMING TO A STOP AT THE LITTLE PLATFORM. LIKE A MAN DAZED, HE GATHERED UP HIS ULSTER. "'he would tell them about the cablegram "'when they were all on board the train. "'Then he ran out upon the platform "'just as the engine whistled twice in the final warning "'that precedes the first rumbling jerk of coupling pins. "'The others were on board, "'leaning out from the platform of a pullman, "'crying to him to hurry. "'Quite five minutes elapsed "'before they were settled in their seats, "'nor was it until then that Clayton discovered "'that Tarzan was not with them. "'Where is Tarzan?' he asked Jane Porter. "'In another car?' "'No,' she replied. "'At the last minute he determined to drive his machine back to New York. "'He is anxious to see more of America than is possible from a car window. "'He is returning to France, you know.' Clayton did not reply. He was trying to find the right words to explain to Jane Porter the calamity that had befallen him, and her. He wondered just what the effect of his knowledge would be on her. Would she still wish to marry him?' to be plain, Mrs. Clayton? Suddenly, the awful sacrifice which one of them must make loomed large before his imagination. Then came the question. Will Tarzan claim his own? The ape-man had known the contents of the message before he calmly denied knowledge of his parentage. He had admitted that Kayla the ape was his mother. Could it have been for love of Jane Parter? There was no other explanation which seemed reasonable. Then, he having ignored the evidence of the message, was it not reasonable to assume that he meant never to claim his birthright? If this were so, what right had he, William Cecil Clayton, to thwart the wishes, to balk the self-sacrifice of this strange man? If Tarzan of the Apes could do this thing to save Jane Porter from unhappiness, why should he, to whose care she was entrusting her whole future, do aught to jeopardize her interests?' and so he reasoned, until the first generous impulse to proclaim the truth and relinquish his titles and his estates to their rightful owner was forgotten beneath the mass of sophistries which self-interest had advanced. But during the balance of the trip, and for many days thereafter, he was moody and distraught. Occasionally the thought obtruded itself that possibly at some later day Tarzan would regret his magnanimity, and claim his rights." Several days after they reached Baltimore, Clayton broached the subject of an early marriage to Jane. "'What do you mean by early?' she asked. "'Within the next few days I must return to England at once. I want you to return with me, dear.' "'I can't get ready so soon as that,' replied Jane. "'It will take a whole month, at least.' She was glad, for she hoped that whatever called him to England might still further delay the wedding. She had made a bad bargain, But she intended carrying her part loyally to the bitter end. If she could manage to secure a temporary reprieve, though, she felt that she was warranted in doing so. His reply disconcerted her. Very well, Jane, he said. I am disappointed, but I shall let my trip to England wait a month. Then we can go back together. But when the month was drawing to a close, she found still another excuse upon which to hang a postponement, until at last, discouraged and doubting, "'Clayton was forced to go back to England alone. "'The several letters that passed between them "'brought Clayton no nearer to a consummation of his hopes "'than he had been before. "'And so it was that he wrote directly to Professor Porter "'and enlisted his services. "'The old man had always favoured the match. "'He liked Clayton, and being of an old Southern family "'he put rather an exaggerated value on the advantages of a title "'which meant little or nothing to his daughter. Clayton urged that the professor accept his invitation to be his guest in London, an invitation which included the professor's entire little family, Mr. Philander, Esmeralda, and all. The Englishman argued that once Jane was there, and home ties had been broken, she would not so dread the step which she had so long hesitated to take. So the evening that he received Clayton's letter, Professor Porter announced that they would leave for London the following week. But once in London, Jane Porter was no more tractable than she had been in Baltimore. She found one excuse after another, and when finally Lord Tennington invited the party to cruise around Africa in his yacht, she expressed the greatest delight in the idea, but absolutely refused to be married until they had returned to London. As the cruise was to consume a year at least, for they were to stop for indefinite periods at various points of interest, Clayton mentally anathematized Tennington for ever suggesting such a ridiculous trip. It was Lord Tennington's plan to cruise through the Mediterranean and the Red Sea to the Indian Ocean— and thus down the east coast, putting in at every port that was worth the seeing. And so it happened that on a certain day two vessels passed in the Strait of Gibraltar. The smaller, a trim white yacht, was speeding toward the east, and on her deck sat a young woman who gazed with sad eyes upon a diamond-studded locket, which she idly fingered. Her thoughts were far away, in the dim, leafy fastness of a tropical jungle, and her heart was with her thoughts." She wondered if the man who had given her the beautiful bauble that had meant so much more to him than the intrinsic value which he had not even known could ever have meant to him was back in his savage forest. And upon the deck of the larger vessel, a passenger steamer passing toward the east, the man sat with another young woman, and the two idly speculated upon the identity of the dainty craft gliding so gracefully through the gentle swell of the lazy sea. When the yacht had passed, the man resumed the conversation that her appearance had broken off. "'Yes,' he said. "'I like America very much. "'And that means, of course, that I like Americans. "'For a country is only what its people make it. "'I met some very delightful people while I was there. "'I recall one family from your own city, Miss Strong, "'whom I liked particularly, Professor Porter and his daughter.' "'Jane Porter!' exclaimed the girl. "'Do you mean to tell me that you know Jane Porter? "'Why, she's the very best friend I have in the world. "'We were little children together.' we've known each other for ages.' "'Indeed,' he answered, smiling. "'You would have difficulty in persuading anyone of the fact "'who had seen either of you.' "'I'll qualify the statement then,' she answered, with a laugh. "'We have known each other for two ages, hers and mine. "'But seriously, we are as dear to each other as sisters, "'and now that I'm going to lose her, I'm almost heartbroken.' "'Going to lose her?' exclaimed Tarzan. "'Why, what do you mean?' oh, yes, I understand. You mean that now she is married and living in England. You will seldom if ever see her. Yes, replied she, and the saddest part of it all is that she is not marrying the man she loves. Oh, it is terrible. Marrying from a sense of duty. I think it is perfectly wicked. And I told her so. I felt so strongly on the subject that although I was the only person outside of blood relations who was to have been asked to the wedding, I would not let her invite me. "'for I should not have gone to witness the terrible mockery. "'But Jane Porter is peculiarly positive. "'She has convinced herself that she is doing the only honourable thing that she can do, "'and nothing in the world will ever prevent her from marrying Lord Greystoke "'except Greystoke himself, or death. "'I am sorry for her,' said Tarzan. "'And I am sorry for the man she loves,' said the girl, "'for he loves her. "'I've never met him, but from what Jane tells me he must be a very wonderful person.' "'It seems that he was born in the African jungle "'and brought up by fierce anthropoid apes. "'He had never seen a white man or woman "'until Professor Porter and his party "'were marooned on the coast "'right at the threshold of his tiny cabin. "'He saved them from all manner of terrible beasts "'and accomplished the most wonderful feats imaginable. "'And then to cap the climax "'he fell in love with Jane and she with him, "'though she never really knew it for sure "'until she had promised herself to Lord Greystoke. "'Most remarkable,' murmured Tarzan. "'cudgeling his brain for some pretext upon which to turn the subject. "'He delighted in hearing Hazel Strong talk of Jane, "'but when he was the subject of the conversation he was bored and embarrassed. "'But he was soon given a respite, for the girl's mother joined them, "'and the talk became general. "'The next few days passed uneventfully. "'The sea was quiet, the sky was clear, "'the steamer plowed steadily on toward the south without pause. "'Tarzan spent quite a little time with Miss Strong and her mother.' They whiled away their hours on deck, reading, talking, or taking pictures with Miss Strong's camera. When the sun had set, they walked. One day Tarzan found Miss Strong in conversation with a stranger, a man he had not seen on board before. As he approached the couple, the man bowed to the girl and turned to walk away. "'Wait, Monsieur Thurin, said Miss Strong. "'You must meet Mr. Caldwell. We're all fellow passengers and should be acquainted.' The two men shook hands. As Tarzan looked into the eyes of Monsieur Thurin, he was struck by the strange familiarity of their expression. "I have had the honor of Monsieur's acquaintance in the past, I am sure," said Tarzan, "though I cannot recall the circumstances." Monsieur Thurin appeared ill at ease. "I cannot say, Monsieur," he replied. "It may be so. I have had that identical sensation myself when meeting a stranger. "'Monsieur Thurin has been explaining some of the mysteries of navigation to me,' explained the girl. Tarzan paid little heed to the conversation that ensued. He was attempting to recall where he had met Monsieur Thurin before. That it had been under peculiar circumstances he was positive. Presently the sun reached them, and the girl asked Monsieur Thurin to move her chair further back into the shade. Tarzan happened to be watching the man at the time, and noticed the awkward manner in which he handled the chair.' His left wrist was stiff. That clue was sufficient. A sudden train of associated ideas did the rest. Monsieur Thuran had been trying to find an excuse to make a graceful departure. The lull in the conversation following the moving of their position gave him an opportunity to make his excuses. Bowing low to Miss Strong and inclining his head to Tarzan, he turned to leave them. Just a moment, said Tarzan. If Miss Strong will pardon me, I will accompany you. "'I shall return in a moment to Miss Strong.' "'Monsieur Thurand looked uncomfortable. "'When the two men had passed out of the girl's sight, "'Tarzan stopped, laying a heavy hand on the other's shoulder. "'What's your game now, Rokoff?' he asked. "'I'm leaving France as I promised you,' replied the other, in a surly voice. "'I see you are,' said Tarzan. "'But I know you so well that I can scarcely believe "'that your being on the same boat with me is purely a coincidence.' If I could believe it, the fact that you are in disguise would immediately disabuse my mind of any such idea. I cannot see what you are going to do about it. This vessel flies the English flag. I have as much right on board her as you, and from the fact that you are booked under assumed name, I imagine that I have more right. We will not discuss it, Rokoff. All I wanted to say to you is that you must keep away from Miss Strong. She is a decent woman. Rokoff turned scarlet. "'If you don't, I shall pitch you overboard,' continued Tarzan. "'Do not forget that I am just waiting for some excuse.' Then he turned on his heel and left Rokoff standing there trembling with suppressed rage. He did not see the man again for days, but Rokoff was not idle. In his stateroom with Polvitch. he fumed and swore, threatening the most terrible of revenges. "'I would throw him overboard to he cried, "'were assured that those papers were not on his person.' I cannot chance pitching them into the ocean with him. If you were not such a stupid coward, Alexis, you would find the way to enter his stateroom and search for the documents. "'Polvich smiled. "You are supposed to be the brains of this partnership, my dear Nicholas," he replied. "Why don't you find the means to search Monsieur Caldwell's stateroom, eh?" Two hours later, fate was kind to them, for Polvich, who was ever on the watch, saw Tarzan leave his room without locking the door. Five minutes later, Rokoff was stationed where he could give the alarm in case Tarzan returned, and Polvich was deftly searching the contents of the ape-man's luggage. He was about to give up in despair when he saw a coat which Tarzan had just removed. A moment later, he grasped an official envelope in his hand. A quick glance at its contents brought a broad smile to the Russian's face. When he left the stateroom, Tarzan himself could not have told that an article in it had been touched since he left it. Polvich was a past master in his chosen field. When he handed the packet to Rokoff in the seclusion of their stateroom, the larger man rang for a steward and ordered a pint of champagne. "'We must celebrate, my dear Alexis,' he said. "'It was luck, Nicholas,' explained Povich. "'It is evident that he carries these papers always upon his person. Just by chance he neglected to transfer them when he changed coats a few minutes since. But there will be the deuce to pay when he discovers his loss.' I am afraid that he will immediately connect you with it. Now that he knows you are on board, he will suspect you at once. "'It will make no difference whom he suspects after tonight,' said Rokoff, with a nasty grin. After Miss Strong had gone below that night, Tarzan stood leaning over the rail looking far out to sea. Every night he had done this since he had come on board. Sometimes he stood thus for an hour. And the eyes that had been watching his every movement since he had boarded the ship at Algiers "'knew that this was his habit. "'Even as he stood there, this night, those eyes were on him. "'Presently the last straggler had left the deck. "'It was a clear night, but there was no moon. "'Objects on deck were barely discernible. "'From the shadows of the cabin two figures crept stealthily "'upon the ape-man from behind. "'The lapping of the waves against the ship's sides, "'the whirring of the propeller, the throbbing of the engines, "'drowned the almost soundless approach of the two. "'They were quite close to him now, and crouching low, like tacklers on a gridiron. "'One of them raised his hand and lowered it, as though counting off seconds. one, two, three. "'As one man, the two leaped for their victim. "'Each grasped a leg, and before Tarzan of the apes, "'lightning though he was, could turn to save himself, "'he had been pitched over the low rail and was falling into the Atlantic. "'Hazel Strong was looking from her darkened port across the dark sea.' "'Suddenly a body shot past her eyes from the deck above. "'It dropped so quickly into the dark waters below "'that she could not be sure of what it was. "'It might have been a man. "'She could not say. "'She listened for some outcry from above, "'for the always fearsome call, "'Man overboard. "'But it did not come. "'All was silence on the ship above. "'All was silence on the sea below. "'The girl decided that she had but seen "'a bundle of refuse thrown overboard "'by one of the ship's crew.' and a moment later, sought her birth. Thanks for joining us for chapters 11 and 12 of The Return of Tarzan. We'll return with chapters 13 and 14 next week Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, this is your host, John Hagedorn. Everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.